0: open their Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 38. Nobody wanted to sponsor the British national cycling team. That's because in 100 years, they had won, excuse me, they had won a single gold medal at the Olympics. And in hundred and ten years since the conception of the Tour de France had not won a single one. Sponsors were afraid to have their gear used by the, by this team because they thought it would actually hurt their sales. But in 2008 everything changed. In, in just the year 2008 alone at the Beijing Olympics they won sixty percent of the gold medals. At the next Olympics in 2012, which I believe was London, they set nine Olympic world records and seven world records. Then, from 2012 to 2017, they won five of the six Tour de France's. During the years 2007 to 2017, after a 100-year championship and gold medal drought, British cyclists won 178 world championships, and 66 gold medals, and captured five Tour de France victories in what is widely regarded as the most successful run in cycling history. So what happened? How did they change? Well, about five years before their stunning success, they hired a man named Dave Brailsford. Dave Brailsford. And and Dave Brailsford did something counterintuitive. He didn't focus on winning. He didn't focus on gold medals. He didn't focus on victory. Instead, he focused on 1%. So, what can we improve upon by 1%? They redesigned bike seats to make them more comfortable. They made riders wear heated shorts to help maintain leg temperature. They tested different massage gels to see which ones worked best for muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach riders how to properly wash their hands so that they wouldn't catch a cold. They even painted the inside of their truck white so that they would catch little specks of dust that might damage their otherwise finely tuned bikes. And in just five years of doing stuff like this, the trajectory of the British team was remarkably different. Who knew that good hand washing could contribute to becoming one of the most successful biking teams in history? You want to win a Tour de France? Wash your hands. It's counterintuitive. If you want to win, don't focus on winning. Focus on 1% changes. They Brailsford came in and subverted the modern understanding of Viking in order to create something completely new and different. Christmas is about the counterintuitive. Christmas is about subverting in order to make something new and different. It's about a God who, who must punish sin, but instead of punishing His people for their sin, He deeply loves them, And so he must become a baby. It's about a God who subverts human understanding about what it means to be great and good and mighty. It's about a God who comes and undermines human pride by exalting the humble, by himself becoming humble. And we see this counterintuitive subverting Christmas in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 this section that we're in is it's two identical stories about two different people but it's a, a world of contrasts to show us the astonishing wisdom and mercy of our God it shows us an astonishing gospel so i'd like us to see that in Luke chapter 1 and we're reading verses 5 to 38 so you know i'm going to read a little quickly Uh, Because we got some material to work through. All right, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord of people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel departed from her. Like I said, this chapter is a story of contrasts. And the chapter of contrasts. And the first contrast is the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. The two main characters in these chapters. And that shows us our first point. The gospel subverts human standards. The gospel subverts human standards. About Zechariah, we learn a few things. First, he is a priest, which for our current uh, sermon, what we need to note about that means he's high up on the social ladder, okay? Think of priests, of how we think of doctors today, we, we hold them in high esteem. So he's higher up on the social ladder. Second, we learn that he is married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the only thing that I'd like to point out about this is that it's normal, Okay, so Zechariah is a guy that he's not only socially esteemed, but his life is socially acceptable. Hold on to that thought for just a little bit. So, I mean, if, if, if I'm going to give an example, so he's a doctor, and he's not like, like a plastic surgeon, but like a family doctor, right? He's not only socially esteemed, but socially acceptable. Nothing against the status quo. And third, third we learn that his wife, Elizabeth, is barren there there she she talks about her reproach among the people but there's a there's a, a sympathy mixed with this shame here and, and if this might i hope this illustration works I, I think it does forgive me if it doesn't but it's almost almost how we might see a woman who's diagnosed with with breast cancer today and she has to get a mastectomy okay the woman with breast cancer we have much sympathy for her but when she has that uh, surger, surgery surgery we, we might associate lacking um Pro- proper womanly properties with kind of a, a you know, she's different, right? There's, there's a sense of sympathy and also a little bit of, of this weird shame, right, that comes with that. I'm not saying that's right. That's how humans operate, okay? In other words, not like the rest of us, but still some sympathy. Follow? Hopefully. Don't need it anymore. And we learn, we learn that Elizabeth is going to become pregnant by God's grace. But here's the thing. In other people's eyes, we, I think we take for granted what other people may have thought because I don't think that they immediately saw, oh, what a great miracle from God. I mean, it certainly would have seemed incredible to other people, but most people would just say, that's awesome, they're pregnant, good for them. Like they, they they wouldn't necessarily associate it with an angel coming to see Elizabeth and telling her she's going to get pregnant. They're like, whoa, that's great. In all of this, listen, in all of this, the point that I'm trying to make is that all of what's happening is perfectly socially acceptable. Of course God will bless Zechariah. He's a priest. Of course God can give them a baby. They're married. You see, it's nothing just kind of out of the the status quo. We're also introduced to a girl named Mary. We learn a few things about her. First, Mary is from Nazareth. Whereas Zechariah is in Jerusalem in the temple, Mary is far away in an old country town. Uh, Zechariah is uh, in New York City. Mary's in Houston, Missouri. I, you know, I spent a long time trying to figure out which country town I wanted her to be from. Houston just seemed like a really good, like, Houston, I'm from Houston, you know. Uh, and there's a place in Houston called the Eaton Place, and that's where Mary works as a waitress. Okay? She has an accent, right? She's from a northern Israel. She has a weird Galilean accent. So she's from Nazareth. But second, Mary is, is engaged but unmarried. So she's, she's single. People believe she was probably as young as 15 years old. Lastly, we learn that Mary is going to become pregnant. Whereas Elizabeth's shame vanishes when she becomes pregnant, Mary enters into a world of shame when she became pregnant. Where people celebrated Elizabeth's pregnancy, people scorned Mary's pregnancy. Where Elizabeth had a husband to support her, Mary Mary's virtually alone. It's not hard to imagine the kind of shame that Mary would have endured. I mean, even in our culture today, where promiscuity abounds, there's still a level of shame we bring on a girl who is pregnant out of wedlock. Especially if that girl comes to church every week. Like, think about the, the thoughts that go through our head about this. like, Guys, I'm I'm speaking from my own experience. She should have known better. How could she? What a poor decision. Some of us might even say, is she even a Christian? Take that, what we think, and multiply it by a thousand, and that's what it would have been like for her in Jewish culture. But God did not care what people thought about her. He did not care what people would say about her. He did not care the kind of shame people would heap on her because the gospel subverts those human standards. Instead of the respectable, highly esteemed married couple, God chose the single, out-of-wedlock teenage girl to bring his one and only son into the world. Instead of the pregnancy that people celebrated, it was the pregnancy that people shamed. And that's astonishing. That's astonishing. We, we so want God to operate in, in the mighty and the influential and, and the, the powerful. We want God to operate in this safe, acceptable normal way but God actively subverts our human standards God works not through the mighty but through the weak God works not through victory but through suffering God works not through celebrity but through the lowly not through those with a lot to offer but through widows who can only offer two pennies the ones that, that in our human minds we think are the least deserving or the least able or the least influential, God chooses for the greatness of His glory. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. The gospel subverts human standards. Secondly, the gospel redefines human striving. We see this uh, in our second contrast. Uh, Of this chapter, and that's mainly going to be found in Gabriel's message to Zechariah and his message to Mary. Gabriel meets both, and he tells both that they're going to have a baby, and when he meets Zechariah, he tells him he's going to have a son, and he shall call his name John. John is going to be this prophet whose role it is to prepare the Lord's coming. When he meets Mary, he also tells her that she will have a son, and she shall call him Jesus. Now, even though Gabriel doesn't say, right, this is the Lord that John is going to introduce to the world. Like, he doesn't say that explicitly. The fact that Luke brings them together shows us that it's Jesus, right, that, that uh, John is, is going to prepare the way for. But I, wanna, I want us to focus on a little detail uh, in the greeting. First, look at how Gabriel greets Zechariah in, in verse 13. Just look at, at verse 13. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Now, first, let me just get it out of the way that John's birth has been foretold in many places in the Old Testament. But here, Gabriel says that this is a response to prayer. The two aren't mutually exclusive, and you know, today you probably didn't wake up thinking, right, I want to talk about prayer and God's sovereignty today. We'll save that for another week. But what I want to say about this is this. This is the way we normally imagine God working, isn't it? Right? In response to a righteous man's prayer. That's, yes, yes, that's the way we normally imagine God working. He'll answer a righteous man's prayer. I mean, this who would you rather have pray for you, right? A six-year-old or Billy Graham? I'd choose Billy Graham. Hey, I, if you're sick, Cherry, you're awesome, and I want you to pray for me, but if Billy Graham's like, hey, I'll pray for you, but Cherry can't be like, ah, <laughs> Billy Graham, you know Okay, anyway, uh, but there's nothing wrong with this, right? That's, that's what I'm trying to say. There's nothing wrong with this. God responds to prayer. That's awesome. Amen. But the gospel goes deeper. Look at how Gabriel greets Mary twice in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And again, look at verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Favor. Grace before we ever learn anything about Mary, God comes to her in grace. She wasn't praying for a baby. She's been dreaming about her dream wedding and whether she's going to have beige napkins or green napkins or what color her bridesmaid dresses are. That's what she's worried about. But Luke is making a contrast on purpose John comes in response to human prayer. Jesus comes in response to divine grace. John comes in the way we normally operate. Jesus comes despite the way we operate. John comes filled with the Spirit. Jesus comes born of the Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus' birth is supposed to signify. Not that John's birth wasn't miraculous, because it was. And not that God doesn't respond to prayer, because he does. But that the gospel is not a response to human striving. God didn't look down the mountain and see humans trying to get up to him, and so he says, let me go help them out. God looked down the mountain and saw no one was trying to come up to him, so he comes down for them. The gospel is God's response despite human striving and despite human effort. God came to do what humans could not. And that redefines human striving. Before you ever do anything to God, before you ever do anything for God, He comes to you in grace. Before you ever pray, God comes to you in grace. Before you ever obey, God comes to you in grace. Before you ever repent of your disobedience, God comes to you in grace. God comes to you in grace in spite of your efforts. You don't activate God's grace. His grace is already active. And it already meets you. Where you are. And that's scandalous. It is absolutely scandalous that God chooses to operate this way. No, you shouldn't get away with your sin. I should not have gotten away with a lot of the sin in my life, but grace. Yes, your sin should make God disappointed, but grace. No, your prayers don't enhance your standing with God, By grace. Your standing is already perfect in Christ by grace. Your obedience doesn't increase your favor because you're already perfectly favored in Christ by grace. You can never, ever, ever, ever outsend God's grace to you in Christ. His grace is simply far too expansive and mighty. And no obedience you can muster increases His love for you in Christ. You didn't ask for His love. You didn't repent enough to deserve His love. God's forgiveness of your immense sin is not a response to you, but His favor already toward you in Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you couldn't earn it. While you would never earn it. While you were earning condemnation. And that redefines human striving. Everything we do is a response to a God who already forgives, already cleanses, already renews, and already showers grace before we ever do anything for him. It's what changes just being religious to actually being Christian. Because of that, the gospel transforms human shame. Our last point. It's really interesting that both Zechariah and Mary have essentially the same response to Gabriel. Not only are they both afraid, they both have like the same question, which is, how can this be? Right? Zechariah in verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And Mary in verse 34, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Right? Right? nothing in those words to make us think like that Zechariah's response was wrong and Mary's is right. They're like the same kind of response, but but Zechariah ends up not being able to talk for nine months and Mary doesn't suffer any consequences. So, So there's nothing in the words themselves that indicates that Zechariah said something wrong and Mary said something right. There's something deeper that's happened. And the short, answer, the short answer is that um, it's unbelief, right? We, we learn, right, that uh, the angel says, because you did not believe my words. But if we reflect on that, like I know we're almost out of time, so just hang, hang in there. If we reflect on that for just a minute, it's ridiculous. Listen, listen remember who he said Zechariah was. In, in, in verse 6, he's explicitly described as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So not only is he described as righteous, but he's a priest. He knows his Bible, guys. He knows his scripture. All of which means he should have known better. He knew, Guys, he knew about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Hannah and Elkanah, and all the incredible promises that God makes about barren women in the Old Testament. He knew all of them. Better than Mary probably knew in her entire life. It's like if you go to the doctor and you tell him that these are their problems, and he's like, Well, what do you think? It's your job to know, man, <laughs> not mine. And so the guy who is socially esteemed, socially acceptable, and knows his Bible best is brought to silence, he's brought to shame. while the girl who is socially inferior and pregnant out of wedlock sings. Just a few verses after this, uh, we have a song recorded for us, and it's Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Yeah, Zechariah ends up speaking, but only after we have made way for this. What all of this means is that what normally brings shame is now an opportunity for praise. We can sing when we are outcast because Jesus was an outcast. We can sing when we are rejected because Jesus was rejected. We can sing when we are alone because Jesus was alone. We can sing when we have nothing because Jesus became nothing. We can sing as great sinners because Jesus targets great sinners. Jesus wants people who know how deeply sinful they are. God is not glorified by people who have it all together. He's not glorified by people who have no problems. He's glorified by the broken. He's glorified by the failure and the depressed and the rotten and the forgotten. He's glorified by them because they are the most prepared to receive His glad grace. The most empty are the most ready to be filled. God transforms human shame. God chose a 15-year-old girl to bear the one who would change everything. This means that the message of Christmas is that everything is not okay. We might have our Christmas lights up exactly how we want. Christmas tree perfectly decorated. We come dressed in our Sunday best, but everything's not okay. But Jesus takes what is not okay and he covers it by his grace. And so Christmas is about a people who are not okay because we are broken, we are fallen, and we're sinful. Listen, guys, we're sinners in this room. We lust, but we know we shouldn't. We get angry. We know we shouldn't. We lie. We know we shouldn't. We're bitter. We know we shouldn't be. We're proud. We know we should be humble. We're jealous. We know we should be thankful. We're discontent. We know we should have everything in Christ. We abuse food and drink. We know we should rely on the Spirit. We're faithless. We're fearful. We we covet. We slander. We divide. and We know we shouldn't do any of these things, but we do them anyway. So what's astonishing about the Gospel is that all of that and more is covered by Christ. You are never beyond the reach of grace because Christ became all of that for you. Even after you become a Christian. And the sin sin seems even that much greater because I should know better. I should. But God treated Jesus the way you deserve to be treated. And now He treats you the way Jesus deserves You are in Christ. God the Father treats you the way His eternal Son deserves. That's the astonishing gospel. Let's pray. Father God, it's one thing to proclaim the astonishing gospel, but it's another thing to think that this is true of me? R- really? A broken, fallen, and sinful creature is treated the way the eternal son of God deserves to be treated? Not because I deserve it. I I don't. I, I am ill deserving. I often earn wrath. But it's because that eternal son of God came took upon himself what is mine and gave me what is his. And that is true of all who will just call on the living name of Christ. Father, you know more than anyone that this world is not okay. And instead of judging it instead of Doing away with it. Instead of starting over, you enter into it and you say, Yeah, everything is not okay, but I'm going to cover all of it with my grace. And so Christmas is a reminder that everything's not okay, but that the way things are, are coming to an end. And that you call on us to repent and to trust in Christ. who will cover each and every one of us with His grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.